this is Podsafe the UK. I'm Coco Khan. And I'm Nish Kumar. And on today's show, it's been the best of years and the worst of years for our guest, Scotland's First Minister, Hamza Youssef. He got his dream job as Scottish First Minister. But was he given the mother of all hospital passes by Nicola Sturgeon? After 17 years in power, the once dominant SNP has suffered a decline in the polls and there is an ongoing police investigation into its finances. We'll ask First Minister Hamza Youssef if he can turn things around in 2024. How are you? Very good, Coco. How are you? Sometimes when we do the intro credits and yeah. we go, hi, it's me, Coco Khan, and it's you. I always have this temptation to say, hi, it's me, Nish Kumar. <laughs> do you have that? Can, can I tell you something? Um, my, uh, my friend, uh, Brett Goldstein, yeah, yeah. star of stage and screen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, there's two things to tell you about. He listens to this show and he calls that section the uh, bit where Nish reads his own name. <laughs> He says it makes him laugh so much that it sounds like I'm reading my own name in the opening credits because I don't know my own name. He also, and this is a slightly more convoluted uh, inside joke, I I used to do a show on uh, a much-missed short-form content platform called Quibi, uh, which existed, I think, for about five minutes, which ironically was the length of most of his content. Um, And he used to watch that show on the toilet. Oh, So he referred to the show as Toilet Niche. He said it was the perfect length of time for him to take a dump and find out what was going on in the news. And now he calls this podcast Toilet Niche the Podcast. Toilet Niche the Podcast? (laughs) I think that is a that is a touch rude. I, I don't know whether because of the podcast length, he's now taking forty five minute dumps. But he, st- <laughs> he, he needs refers- to see a doctor. It's what he needs. <laughs> he refers to this as toilet niche. The podcast. I don't really know how I'm meant to take that. I don't really know how to receive it. I had this thing the other day where I was walking down the street and this guy comes up to me as a listener and was like, "Excuse me, I hope this isn't too weird. Do you do a podcast?" And I was yeah. like, "Yeah, I do do a podcast." And he's like. Do you host the podcast? And I, and I said, yes, I do. And then he was about to say, are you? And I was so close to being like, that's right. It's me, Nish Kumar. <laughs> I really, really, really want And it took everything to hold me back. <laughs> you don't ever get that. What, people coming up to me and saying, are you Coco Khan? <laughs> Just like the desire to mix up the, you don't have that? No, I, people, uh, people are very nice about the podcast. Right. They often come up and say that they uh, they really enjoy it. And they often tell me that they are surprised that you're funnier than me, <laughs> which I'm not because I know you. <laughs> oh, that's... We're getting a lot of negs, aren't we? This toilet niche podcast. Everyone's flirting with us, Coco. Is it? Everyone's negging us. The whole world is trying to bang us. Everyone's... This is the game. <laughs> everyone's, tr- wow. everyone's trying to bang us. It's hard being this pretty. <laughs> Our guest this week is Scotland's First Minister and leader of the Scottish National Party, Hamza Youssef. First Minister, hello and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, what a pleasure. It's quite an odd one, uh, I think, in some ways for us to be having a conversation because we are a show that's called Pod Save the UK and we're interviewing someone whose entire political life has been dedicated to leaving the UK. (laughs) (laughs) And will continue to be. uh, uh, Yes, uh, that is interesting. But actually, a lot of commonality across the UK, I'm sure we'll touch upon. Upon that uh, as well. So, no, I'm yeah. And also, on, you but, and I uh, have some, something else in common in that we're uh, the same fucking age, which obviously <laughs> makes me feel a lot of things about my life and the decisions I've taken. Well, that's not true. I've never sold out the Apollo, but then either of you. So that, no, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, no, I've. Uh, no, no. Look, the, the thing is, your careers are, of course, the upward trajectory. I've hit the pinnacle and the peak. And, yeah. <laughs> are your parents still saying, sure? You're leading the country, but where was that medical career? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, actually, my mum gave me a trouble recently because uh, it was at the family house having dinner. My, I've got two sisters and they were over with their husbands. I was having a chat and just because I was talking to my sister, not for any other reason, the rest of them were cleaning up and I was going to get up and clean up, mum. Um, <laughs> but she said, uh, and she said this in Punjabi, but she said, you know, you're first minister. I don't think you can't do the dishes and maybe get up. <laughs> I was like, it's nothing to do with first minutes. I was literally talking to my sister about it. Anyway, so my mum keeps me grounded, I think. That's important. That's important. We had a funny conversation before you came on air. We were like, oh, what should we call him? Obviously, we've got this Desi moment, so presumably we can be informal. And I think you had a great suggestion, didn't you, Nish? What? First Minister by. First Minister by. Ah, <laughs> oh, I like that. First Minister by. I like yeah. that. That's good. 
That's good. Let's go with that. First minister Biden. <laughs> I mean, I, th- I thought you were about to hit me out with some real Punjabi swear words. Uh, <laughs> uh, but let's keep that. Let's keep that for the after. We'll keep uh, that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So we've got a lot we want to talk to you about. Um, but before we get into it, we just wanted to take a moment to reflect on the story that's kind of overshadowed everything else this week. And that is the announcement that King Charles is being treated for cancer. Prince Harry flew in from California to spend some time with his father at Clarence House yesterday. The King and Queen Camilla have now gone to their Sandringham estate in Norfolk, where they're expected to stay while he undergoes treatment. In an interview with BBC Radio 5 Live, Prime Minister Rishi Sunak seemed to break protocol by revealing more than was in Buckingham Palace's statement. Well, obviously, like everyone else, you're shocked and sad and just all our thoughts are with him and his family. And, you know, thankfully, this has been caught early and now everyone will be wishing him uh, that he gets gets the treatment that that he needs and makes a full recovery. I think that's what we're all hoping and praying for. And I'm, of course, in in regular contact uh, with him and we'll continue to to communicate with him as, as normal. Were you told the news before it was made public? I was, uh, as uh, tends to be protocol, but obviously we didn't uh, uh, say anything publicly until the news broke uh, publicly. And uh, look, my my sentiments are similar to everybody else's. Um, you know, there'll not be a person in the country that probably hasn't been impacted or affected by cancer in some way, shape, or form. And uh, I say, in one sense, it doesn't matter if you're king uh, or not. You're going to have children that are worried about you, your partner, your wife that's worried about you. Um, and, and, and many others, given it is the king right across the country, that are worried for himself. So speedy recovery to him. And I hope he gets back into to his public engagements. And, you know, in fairness to, to the king, and look, my, my views are well known around monarchy and uh, I, I describe myself very much as a, as a Republican. But I absolutely think he has been ahead of his time on many issues, climate change uh, being, being, being one of them. So, look, I think his, his voice is an important one. I, as I say, I just wish him all the very best of health. We're coming up to quite an important anniversary for you personally because it's almost a year since uh, your predecessor, Nicola Sturgeon, announced her resignation, which just felt quite shocking at the time. Um, Mm. It obviously changed your life massively and led to you taking over as leader of the SNP and First Minister. What was that moment like? You're right, it was a shock. Uh, I remember the day very, very well, so Nicola resigned publicly on the on, on the 15th made her announcement but she phoned me the day before valentine's day actually on the 14th and it's strange getting a phone call from your boss on valentine's day <laughs> and you kind of go i wonder what's up here and it was it was late at night i think it was about quarter to 10 i think uh, when she gave me a call so, so you really had no sense that that was coming that completely came out of the blue to you oh completely I and mean, the timing of it i think most of us probably thought nicola's likely to resign ahead of 2026 that's when the next scottish elections are due to take place but many of us thought it would be probably years years down the line so complete, completely out of the blue and complete shock. And I mean, the first sentence she said to me, I knew what she was going to, to tell me. She said, I said, how, I said, how are you? And she said, I'm okay, but you're not going to like what I've got to say to you. And I said, well, don't say it. And <laughs> she then decided to say it and tell me. And it was a bit of profanity uh, from my end. Um, <laughs> and then, and then I, I, I said something like at the end of the conversation, which is almost grassing her up, I said to her, Right, I'm going to go speak to John about this because it's outrageous. I think that you're resigning, and John is her was her deputy. John Swinney was uh, her deputy, and I phoned him and he said, "Look, I've had the conversation with her. Her mind's made up, Hamza. This is just a new phase and era that we've got to." And then he said, "You should go for it." Kind of urged me to to think about it uh, and consider it. And and it's a bizarre thing, by the way. I mean, she resigned, you know, and it was the Wednesday, and you basically got till the Friday, you know, two days, to make this life changing decision because if you're going to launch campaign you've got to do it early you know you've got to go you want to be first get that first kind of mover advantage and yeah you've got two days to basically put yourself in a bit of a bunker and talk to my wife predominantly uh, primarily also other members of my family and come to a decision what could be a life-altering decision that you make and in my case it, it absolutely was do you think you felt prepared at that time for the challenges you were going to face so nothing can prepare you for being leader of your, your country. I've, I've held various ministerial jobs. I've been in government for 11 and a half odd years. And uh, I've had some really difficult, challenging roles. I'm a health secretary in the middle of a pandemic. Um, but nothing can quite prepare you for the everyday challenges, strains, stress. doesn't matter what you do in advance of being first minister. Nothing can prepare you of being leader of your, your, your government and your country. But it's one hell of an honour. I mean... 
think sometimes those of us outside of politics assume that everyone who enters politics is eventual ambition mm. is to be the leader of their party and then the leader of their country. But surely, I mean, and maybe it's just because we're the same age, but I have to believe <laughs> that you it, this is this has happened ahead of schedule for you. I, I think the last two things we can be young for are leader of a country or manager of a football club. Like as far as I can tell, that's the last two things a 38-year-old can be young for. I don't think it was really so much a kind of ambition that I thought about particularly proactively. It's kind of like being the captain of your football team, obviously. Yeah. Uh, greater responsibility, I would suggest. But uh, being the captain of your, your national team is it's something that you would absolutely be honoured to do, privileged to do. And yeah, if the opportunity ever came up, I think I had it in my head. You know, I've, I've been in government for so many years. And ultimately, that was actually why I made the decision to go for it was, well, I've done all of these different roles in government over the years. I've got this experience. If not now, then when? And there's an opportunity. What's the worst that can happen? The worst is that you go for it and you don't get it and fair play to the person that does and you get on with the job or you get it and you have the greatest honour of your life, mm. which is leading the country you love, the country you call home, the country you're raising your kids in. Um, what can be better than that? The New York Times calls BritBox the best of British telly. Stream acclaimed original series, including Payback, starring Peter Mullen, Stonehouse, starring Matthew McFadden, and Archie, the man who became Cary Grant, starring Jason Isaacs. Plus, discover powerful new series like Three Little Birds and the return of BAFTA-winning drama Time, starring Bella Ramsey, Tamara Lawrence, and Jodie Whittaker. Stream the best of British TV only on BritBox. Start a free trial at BritBox.com. Well, Hamza, we are three people of colour, three South Asians, so let's fulfil every stereotype and talk about race. <laughs> I thought you were about to say bring out the samosas, but uh, no. Well, I was okay. thinking earlier, because we're sort of sat in a little triangle, which has a samosa <laughs> energy, doesn't it? It's quite nice. energy, yes. It's going to be spicy in the middle. That's what we know for sure. Um, we occasionally, me and Nish, like to style ourselves as the news Asians. No one else does. I cannot stress that enough. We're Literally trying really no hard. <laughs> um, and listen, you know, it's fascinating to see so many second generation British Asians rising to the top of politics. You know, you've got yourself, Rishi Sunak as PM, recent cabinet ministers like Priti Patel, Sajid Javid, Sadiq Khan, London Mayor, you know, your opposite number, Anasawa is leading Scottish Labour. What do you think? Is this a sign of the success of multiculturalism? Absolutely. And that's why I can't get over these politicians, usually uh, conservative politicians who themselves are ministers in the government saying that multiculturalism has failed. You're like, really? I mean, the evidence all around us is that actually people of colour have managed to progress, not just in political fields, but in business and the public sector. Now, by the way, there's a long way to go, I think, about in Scotland. If I look across the public and the private sector, there's still too few people of colour at very senior roles. And there's a responsibility for me to try to do what I can to, to rectify that. But uh, this idea that multiculturalism has failed, well, actually, the evidence uh, all around us uh, tells us tells us a, a very different story indeed. And I have to say, for all the differences I've got uh, with uh, the likes of Rishi Sunak and those differences are many, Look, I still celebrated the fact that a person of colour made it to number 10. I mean, that's good for other people of colour to look up to and say, well, actually, that office is attainable for me. Can I ask you one question about one name that has not been mentioned? Uh, and that is Suella Braverman. And I think in terms of people who have said that multiculturalism has failed, she she's actually one of them. It's so fucking weird. <laughs> like, it's so strange to see someone who has a similar ethnic background and I, I presume some similar overlaps in upbringing stand there and reject so many of the things that we have benefited from. How, how do you reckon with a political figure like Suella Braverman? I, I mean, look, I think it's the very uh, definition or personification of somebody pulling up the ladder after they've made it to the top and, and actually my views always be that you should reach your hand out try to bring others up with you that's my responsibility to do I don't want to be the last person of colour in this role by any stretch and you've mentioned there for example South Asians that have done well well actually we want to see people uh, that are Afro-Caribbean Afro Scots we want to see Chinese Scots we want to see Jewish Scots we want to see others 
uh, that our minorities make their way to the highest levels of, of political office. And I think what worries me about the political rhetoric from the likes of Suella Braverman and others, and we saw it today with the Prime Minister, is really debasing and degrading our politics by getting into these real culture war issues as a complete distraction from the actual issues of substance. So whether it's trans rights, uh, whether it's, of course, multiculturalism, uh, whether it's issues around migration and immigration, uh, where all the evidence tells you that things, holistic migration evidence tells you almost virtually every study under the sun that migrants give more than they take. And yet we can't seem in this country to be capable of having a sensible conversation that says, well, we have this much, uh, this, this many work vacancies uh, and job vacancies. We need to grow our economy. Migrants give more than they take. Let's have a sensible approach to migration that helps our economic growth, helps our society and our, and our, and our culture uh, as well. And we're just incapable of it because of this debasing and uh, denigration of, of politics, which I'm afraid the Conservatives are the cheerleaders of. And I suppose the last thing I'd say is, what my worry is, because the Tories are out, out the door, right? They're, they're booted out. There's no ifs, buts. Maybe they're, they're done. Thank goodness for it. My worry is that you've got a Labour Party who at times, and I take the migration debate as an example, begin to fall into that same trap of following that dog whistle that the Conservatives seem to blow. Mm, my concern with this set, and we'll just speak specifically about Rishi Sunak now, is that he is someone who, I mean, he recently gave an interview where he talked about how he had never experienced racism, really. And, you know, he had a sibling, I think, that was once called the P word. And he reflected in this piece being like, oh, you know, I'm glad, I'm glad that won't happen to my kids. And you just think you live on another planet, mate. <laughs> is that true? Totally other planet. I guess, actually, let me ask you, have you experienced racism on your way up to the top? I mean, I think I probably experience a combination of racism and Islamophobia, if not every day, probably every week. I mean, I, I protect myself on social media now that I don't, you know, I don't look at notifications and so on and so forth. But there was a time when I did, and I'd be surprised if I wasn't uh, the victim of racism, Islamophobia uh, online constantly. Uh, but look, I've you know even had people charged a few months ago and found guilty of racism uh, towards me. Uh, and you know, uh, do I think my children are immune from it? Not at all. Not at all. In fact, my worry is that they'll face it uh, to a greater degree than I faced it growing up. And I say that because of exactly the points we're making. There's this, for some reason, obsession by uh, some politicians, particularly those on the right, to open up division, uh, to create division. Mm. And it's a very deliberate political tactic. Whereas actually our responsibility as politicians who are only ever in leadership positions for a set period, right, where as, as all those who believe in democracy, we've got a responsibility to try to unify people and bring them together. That doesn't mean we have, don't have disagreements. We should have pretty robust exchanges around those disagreements. Um, but we shouldn't be looking for these culture war issues to divide society. And, and I, I, my feeling is for my girls growing up, you know, one is four, one is 14. Um, my worry is that they'll face and encounter more racism and Islamophobia than I ever did. Have you encountered racism at Hollywood? Um, I don't think in necessarily the chamber. You know, I've, I've had what we might call institutional racism or Islamophobia, and I was in a meeting a number of years ago now, I remember, with somebody who uh, was from England and he lived in Scotland. Now. And I remember him at the beginning of the meeting saying, oh, you know, I'm from England, I'm an immigrant like you. <laughs> immigrant, mate. I mean, I went from Glasgow to Dundee. I mean, that's... that's <laughs> That's a bit harsh, but genuinely, and, and, and I said, to, I actually said to him in the meeting, I'm, I'm not an immigrant. And he went, no, no, no. And he was completely flustered uh, by it. I didn't mean it in any way malicious, but it was that almost institutional mm. uh, yeah. racism uh, that, of course, you guys uh, will encounter day in and day out. So probably institutionally, yes. Overtly, uh, I'm pleased to say no. Uh, but of course, uh, again, Holyrood is an institution and the Scottish government as an institution is not immune to structural institutional racism by any stretch of the imagination. Given that, you know, we sort of came of age in the post 9-11 period, was there ever a point where you were being pressured to not talk about your faith um, or to maybe kind of keep elements of that of your personality to yourself? Oh, for sure. For sure. Even when I became First Minister, you know, I put out a picture on pretty, I mean, I think it was, was it the day I got sworn in or, or if not the day, the day after, uh, where I was in Butte House, which is the official residence uh, of the First Minister in Edinburgh. And um, it was Ramadan, so when I became first minister, so I broke my fast and then prayed alongside my family. And I put a, a photo of me praying with my family, uh, praying alongside me. 
And I did that very purposely because I want it to be known that actually having a first minister who's Muslim and my faith is important to me, actually that should be perfectly normal. Yeah. Uh, and we should see that as perfectly normal. Um, but there's a number of people, actually including some from within the Muslim community, who said to me, maybe you should just you know, step back from your identity. You know, Maybe it's not going to, maybe people are going to turn against you. I said, well, People will judge me on my politics, what I do, what I deliver. You know, what we don't deliver, that will be that will be what we get judged on. But if people are going to judge me on my faith, I'm not going to pretend to be something I'm not. Well, let's talk about um, the political situation. The most obvious challenge that you faced in the past year has been uh, the investigation that's ongoing into the SNP's finances. Obviously, we know that you can't talk about it because it'd be seen to be influencing an ongoing police investigation. But I just wanted to ask you, how much harder does that make your job? And do you think that this has affected the public's trust in the SNP going into a general election year? Yeah, look, I'm not going to uh, insult the intelligence of uh, the people who listen to your podcast and pretend that it hasn't been difficult. Of course, it has been uh, tricky. But I look at just today when we're talking, you know, the latest poll, Ipsos Mori poll that's come out, puts us well, well ahead of the opposition, I think seven points ahead of the Labour Party. We're not complacent about that and we're going to work hard. Of course, every vote between now and a general election. But also that point about trust is really important. Uh, I think in every single area the poll asks about, we're trusted more than our nearest rival, uh, the, the Labour Party. So we're trusted more than the Labour Party on the NHS, on the economy, and so on and so forth. And that to me tells me, yep, the police investigation and other external headwinds will be a challenge. But if we can deliver for people, then that's what matters to them. So if they're in their house and they see that their council tax is frozen and they've still got access to free childcare, they don't pay a penny for their child's tuition fees at some of the best universities in the world. Um, and their child who's under 22 can travel free in the buses. Yeah, I've got to focus on delivery. That's that's the that's the name of the game. Well, yeah, let's talk about um, Nicola Sturgeon now. She's been back in the public eye at the COVID inquiry. She was your mentor. You've spoken extensively about your personal affection for her and the high regard you hold her in as a politician. Um, she got quite emotional uh, at the COVID inquiry last week. Let's just hear a, a brief clip of that. I was the first minister when... Uh, the pandemic struck, there's a large part of me wishes that I hadn't been, um, but I was, and I wanted to be the best First Minister I could be during that period. It's for others to judge the extent to which I succeeded. Was it hard to watch her shed a tear at last week's COVID inquiry? Very hard, yeah. very hard, uh, because, look, I worked alongside Nicola. I was her, initially, during the pandemic, I was her Justice Secretary and then I was her Health Secretary for a period throughout it and she and I worked very closely together and I can tell you without a single iota of doubt or hesitation that Nicola Sturgeon worked her socks off for one reason and one reason only and that was to try to protect people in this country from from harm of Covid and I would look at Nicola some days and she would look utterly exhausted I could see that she'd lost weight I was talking to her and she wasn't sleeping this was just constant she was nothing but dedicated to that. Now, did she get everything right? Did we get everything right? Of course not. And she'll be the first to, to absolutely admit that. And the whole purpose of the inquiry is to really probe into those issues. Could you have done lockdown earlier? Should you have tested those that were discharged from hospital sooner? These are all the right questions, absolutely, to be probing. Um, but questioning, I think, Nicola's integrity, uh, to me, that's, that's, that's beyond uh, doubt that she uh, absolutely worked her, her socks off. And as I say, all for the reason... Uh, and absolutely for the, the purpose of stopping the harm of COVID from spreading more than it, than it was. So, yeah, that was pretty hard to watch, if I'm honest. Have, have you spoken to her since that? I mean, is she OK? I did, very briefly. And, uh, you know, she found it difficult. But, uh, you know, it was a private conversation, so I won't say too much more about it. But I spoke to her uh, to see how she was, because Nicola is still my colleague. I've got a job to make sure my colleague's well-being is okay. And, and a lot of them, they're really under a significant amount of, of scrutiny and, and even pressure. You know, I think our mental health, regardless of what role you're in, is really important. We just all look out for each other. Well, on the subject of the well-being of politicians, we put a question out to some of our listeners to ask, hey, wh hey, what would you like to ask the First Minister? And actually, a lot of our listeners wanted to ask, are you okay? You know, obviously, we heard a lot about your your family, your in-laws, particularly uh, in Gaza. I mean, how is everything? Uh, look, it's tough. 
Um, those four weeks where my in-laws were in Gaza are probably the most difficult four weeks um, of our lives, uh, really, uh, if I, have to, uh, I have to say and I have to confess. Um, it's still difficult. Nadia, my wife, uh, her, her brother Mohammed is still in Gaza. My wife's stepmom is still in Gaza. My wife's gran, who's 93, is still in Gaza. Aunties and uncles. And I spoke to Mohammed, uh, what did he be on? I spoke to him three days ago now. And uh, he's in a really difficult place. I mean, he's resilient, he's strong, he's trying to just take each day as it comes. But, you know, the fact that, you know, he was finding it difficult just to get access to clean water breaks mm. my heart, totally breaks my heart. And um, the situation in Gaza is a humanitarian catastrophe beyond anything I've ever seen. And I can't uh, understand why we still have so many political leaders refusing to call for an immediate ceasefire. I, I mean, I remember understand. reading about, you know, your situation. Uh, just to summarise it for the listeners, um, your wife Nadia's parents were trapped in Gaza while visiting relatives at the time of the attack by Hamas on Israel on October the 7th. And I just remember thinking, wow, the first minister, he can't help his family. That must have been very strange for you. You have power. Utterly, uh, utterly helpless, utterly helpless. I mean, as you say, you know, by, by, by most definitions, you know, I have the most political power in Scotland and yet I couldn't get my in-laws out of a war zone. And, and that's me in my position. What hope is there for so many others? And, uh, you know, it's, it is and it feels like an utterly hopeless situation at times. Um, and look, it's, it's still a struggle for so many people uh, that have family uh, there. And that's why I'll continue to raise my voice as people like Lord Cameron, who say that Scotland shouldn't be speaking out on, on foreign affairs. I think our voice is really important on the world stage. I think the more voices calling for peace, which I, I, I still can't understand how that is controversial in any way, shape or form. Um, I think we have to keep doing that. And what we're seeing uh, in, in Gaza and uh, the killings that we're seeing, the children that have been killed, uh, history will judge us very uh, poorly because of the international community's lack of uh, response, I have to say. How has it changed you in terms of your fire for politics? Like, there must have been a moment where you thought, oh my God, yeah. this, is not, this system is not going to work to deliver the change I want to see. Well, I think it's why we need more people and more diverse voices in politics because, uh, you know, they're have been so few people in the UK context that were political leaders calling for a ceasefire. And, you know, and I'm, I'm not saying this to, to promote my, my, myself, but I think I was probably the first in the UK to call for an immediate ceasefire. And then we had other political leaders thereafter, people like Sadiq Khan, who I respect uh, a lot. My opposite number, you talked about Anna Sawar. Mm. A few others then began to call for a ceasefire. Now, if I hadn't been in the position I had been or Sadiq hadn't been in the position he'd been, but would there have been people calling for for uh, a ceasefire or not in the UK? I, I don't know is the answer to that question, but I think uh, the more diversity in our voices and our politics is is only a good thing. Before we move off the subject, uh, and we so appreciate, you know, obviously with the, it's a live personal situation for you, and we so appreciate you taking the time to talk to us about this. What is your message to the UK government about its current strategy? The UK government is a, is a trusted ally of the government of Israel. Truthfully, I don't know how much influence they have, but the influence they should be using and exerting uh, is precisely uh, to ensure that, one, the killing stops. But secondly, if you want to see a safe Middle East, a secure Middle East, you don't do that by killing children. Um, that is going to have a completely counterproductive impact uh, and effect. And I would say to the UK government, I would say to the leader of the Labour Party, uh, not only do you risk inflaming the situation uh, in the Middle East, uh, what you risk uh, if we don't stop Israel's action, which has gone beyond a legitimate response, then the ripple effects of that, including here in the UK, could be pretty significant uh, as well. And we know that, uh, for example, around the community tensions that exist and they exist in Scotland, I'm sure they exist right across the UK between communities and we just need to uh, make sure we're doing everything we can to bring peace uh, to, that, to that region. So I'll keep calling for an immediate ceasefire. I'll keep calling out what I see uh, as illegitimate uh, action and we'll continue to call for the release of, 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 of hostages, of course, because families in Israel will undoubtedly be grieving and mourning their loved ones still in captivity.
This came in from at Pete W. Marshall. Uh, With the recent positive conversations being had regarding the Irish border and a possible roadmap for reunification, would successful progress from Stormont potentially move the needle on revisiting the issue of getting Scotland away from Westminster. So, I mean, obviously what he's referring to is massively consequential news for the UK that after two years of political paralysis, there's been the return of the power sharing government in Stormont and it's resulted in Sinn Féin having its first ever elected first minister. Were you kept in the loop about the deal that was going on with the DUP? So I can see my special advisor's eyes popping out of his head at the question, uh, Pete Marshall. So let me, uh, no, uh, in, 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 in all truth and honesty, uh, I wasn't kept up to date in terms of the deal. Uh, we were hearing noises that there was positive discussions going on. And I should say, look, that's our starting point. Our starting point is we really welcome the return of power sharing in Northern Ireland and the, the restoration uh, of Stormont and uh, congratulate uh, the First Minister, Michelle O'Neill, who I had in Butte House in Edinburgh uh, a few months ago, and of course the Deputy First Minister, Emma Little-Pengeli, uh, as well. So we really welcome that power sharing uh, being uh, restored. Look, as for a border poll uh, in the future Irish unification, they're not matters for me or matters for Scotland. They are matters absolutely uh, for uh, the people of uh, Northern Ireland uh, to have that discussion. And of course, uh, the island of, of of Ireland. There's a good Friday agreement there. Uh, power sharing is a critical key part uh, of that. Um, but look, I wouldn't seek to, to interfere or influence uh, their uh, discussion. And I wouldn't expect that to come the other way either when it comes to the discussion on Scottish independence. But your ears must have pricked up a bit though, right? Because I mean, you mentioned <laughs> Michelle O'Neill there, Northern Ireland's first nationalist first minister. Uh, she's from Sinn Féin. She says that a referendum on a united island could come within 10 years. That that would surely boost the independence cause in Scotland, no? Yeah, but them easy, honestly. I said to you, <laughs> I said to you, <laughs> I will answer the question, no. And and, and, and all, and all truth, again, it will be absolutely for... Uh, those uh, in Northern Ireland to have a discussion about the future of Northern Ireland. Um, it's not for me. Uh, in terms of independence for Scotland, look, I'm hoping that it comes sooner, way sooner than, than 10 years. I wish it came yesterday. Uh, in fact, so my job is to try to advance the cause of Scottish independence sooner rather than later. A question we've had in from a listener that puts it quite succinctly. They emailed in to say, with a black hole in the Scottish budget, crisis in NHS, crisis in NHS, sorry, uh, prison and councils funding, as well as the cost of living crisis, why are the SNP wasting government capacity on constitutional questions rather than the well-being of Scottish people? She says, thank you. And that is Fee from Sterling. Oh, I thought they were going to say it was uh, a sour from Glasgow. That, that, that question. Listen, um, we don't know what sock puppet accounts <laughs> the leader of the Scottish <laughs> Labour Party is using. <laughs> uh, yeah, look, a few things I would say to, to Fee. First and foremost, the cost of living crisis, of course, is a Westminster created cost of living crisis. It was Westminster that has imposed, what, almost 14 years of austerity. It was the Prime Minister that was outlived by a latest that ended up crashing and torpedoing the UK economy. It's a Brexit that none of us voted for, or, or the country didn't vote for, that's been imposed upon us that has caused such economic damage. So actually the question of the cost of living crisis is absolutely fundamental to independence. I don't want independence because you know, I like to wave flags or eat shortbread or paint my face with a saltire. The reason I believe in independence is because I think it's good for our economy and our society uh, and, our, and our people. Uh, in terms of the challenges that we face, again, I'm not going to rebut every single point. Um, but look, Scotland is the only nation in the UK that didn't have junior doctor strikes or nurses strikes or NHS staff strikes. The reason is because we believe in paying our NHS staff fairly and our A&E departments are the best performing uh, for compared to the rest of the UK for eight years. The reason for that is because we value our NHS workers. And yep, does that mean we have to make tough choices? In Scotland, you may have seen, I've asked the top 5% in the country, people like me, who earn the most, to pay more in tax than perhaps the top 5% in other parts of the UK. But if we do that, then those with the great, you know, biggest shoulders pay the most. And that to me is actually good leadership is saying, yep, there's challenges there. Let's invest in our public services and those who earn the most, let's make them pay that a little bit more. And I just wanted to ask you specifically about Brexit. Do you think Brexit has been a double-edged sword for the SNP? Because on the one hand, it changed the terms of membership of the United Kingdom. And certainly I think because Scotland did vote to remain in the European Union, it galvanised a section of Scottish society 
behind the idea of independence that maybe have been on the fence beforehand. But do you think some of the administrative problems with Brexit have made people cautious about changing the arrangements with your nearest trading partner? Has it, has it helped as much as it's hurt the SNP? I don't think so. I completely understand why I asked the question and follow your rationale uh, around all of that. But the independent support is pretty rock solid. So the poll today that I just mentioned puts us at, what, 53% for yes. Um, so, so, you know, we're at 50% above, sometimes just below. So we're kind yeah. of solidly 50-50. I think the challenge for the SNP and the independence movement is we've, we've had Boris Johnson, we've had Liz Trust, we've had Brexit. And actually, the dial on independence hasn't shifted as much as people might expect, given the disaster of those three uh, individuals and episodes in, in, in UK politics. But that's probably because I don't think the, the independence movement has done enough, and we're working on this, to say to people, okay, we're not just saying you should vote, you know, you should vote against these uh, various different factors. Here's something to vote for. So independence has to be about giving something, giving people something to vote for. I don't think we've quite done that uh, enough. I think we've done that in, in parts. We've not done that enough. So we've got to galvanise, and, and that's why, and again, I won't go into all the detail, we've published a whole series of papers in detail around, actually, if you vote for independence, here's the prize. Nobody is saying it's a land of milk and honey, but actually being able to make decisions for ourselves, uh, ultimately, based on our values, that, to me, is a much better future than a UK that is in absolute decline, complete and utter decline, even before Brexit, and, and more so since Brexit. Do you think you might be too honest about the challenges that an independent Scotland faced? And have you considered lying on the side of a bus? <laughs> <laughs> Has anybody ever tried that before? <laughs> and how did it end? No, but honestly, one, uh, I think it's good to, of course, be honest as much as you possibly can with people. But I think people also just wouldn't believe it. If, we, if I sat here and said to you, Nish, you know, independence is going to resolve every single problem you've ever had. We'll have, you know, there'll be no more challenges with the NHS. Our education will be the top of the international league tables. You just wouldn't believe it. And, and neither should you believe it. So I think we've got to be honest. And I actually say equally, there's huge opportunity, massive opportunity. And all we have to do is look at the evidence around us. Ireland, Norway, Denmark, they've all got, you know, better productivity. Um, many of them have got national incomes higher per head than the UK, lower inequality. So why on earth not Scotland? particularly with all of the resources we've got. So, no, I, I don't think I'm too honest. I think we should continue to be honest as much as we possibly can. And uh, I think more politicians probably could take a, a leaf out of that book. I guess the, the, the question is always, but how? Like, how would leaving the UK not put Scotland into the same position that the UK had by leaving the EU, the same weaknesses? Just for clarity, that's not mm -hmm. from me. That's from Lewis Dunn, one of our listeners <laughs> on X, formerly Twitter. Uh -huh. D. Ross, Douglas Ross, leader of the Scottish <laughs> Conservatives. I knew it was him. Um, no, no, again, for me, I suppose the big difference is, first and foremost, um, we would then have unfettered access to a market that's seven times the size of the UK. It's a huge market, the world's biggest single market. And uh, we would still continue to trade with the rest of the UK. There's no doubt about that. And of course, we do everything in our powers. And we've produced a paper on this. I'm not going to go into all the detail of it. We do everything in our powers to make sure that any light touch regulation or custom check that has to happen over the border with the rest of the UK is, is as light touch as, as, as possible. Before I ask you this question, I just want you to know that this is a variation of a question we get asked every week about the Labour Party. Mm. Uh, and normally by someone from the demographic uh, age-wise that this person comes from. It's been emailed in by Sandy Malcolm. I'm a young Scot, brackets 22, uh, who supports independence and worries deeply about the climate crisis. I was not able to vote against Brexit or for Scottish independence due to being slightly too young. I have voted SNP wherever possible. But for the first time, I'm considering switching to the Scottish Greens. Why should I vote SNP? Yeah, and I, and I think a, a really legitimate question, a point to, to, to scrutinise the SNP on. First thing to say, of course, that we're in a cooperation agreement with the Green Party, so the Green Party members are, are ministers in my government as well. So we work really closely with the Greens. I think the difference is, particularly in a general election, I think the Greens would be the absolute first to admit that they're not going to win a single general election seat in Scotland. They're not even close to winning a, a general election seat uh, in Scotland. So if you want to make sure that we send down a message to Westminster, and if we don't send down SNP MPs to Westminster, Scotland gets ignored. So what I would say uh, is that look, not only are we taking incredible action on, on, on climate change, and there's always more we can do, world-leading uh, targets, of course, and we're investing 
uh, in that that transition to renewable technology uh, as part of the just transition to net zero. But if you want Scotland's voice to be heard, vote for the SNP because in every single Conservative seat in Scotland, we are second place, so we can make uh, Scotland uh, Tory free, uh, and of course, uh, which which would be a great prize. Uh, but of course, as I say, even in those seats uh, that we already hold, a strong contingency of SNP MPs is needed to make sure our country is not ignored. Talking about making Scotland Tory free <laughs> suggests you know how to butter up our listenership. Um, <laughs> but I just want to talk to you um, about your relation with the other big political party uh, in the United Kingdom, with the Labour Party. Um, there are some polls that have you neck and neck uh, with uh, Labour in Scotland. Obviously, you've referred to the poll that gives you, I think, a seven-point lead. The eminent political analyst, Sir John Curtis, has predicted that you could even end up with the same number of seats. Is that something that concerns you? Well, first of all, when you said you were going to talk to me about the other big political force in the UK, I thought you were going to talk to me about popcorn, <laughs> uh, of course, but, but clearly, clearly that hasn't shaken your very foundations in the same way. Than it has up here in Scotland. Um, in terms well, I mean, of listen, Party, it's the worst named thing. Uh, you know, uh, you could call yourselves popular conservatives all you want. If I change my name to Jay Z, I'm not married to Beyonce. Like, that's not how anything works. <laughs> no, indeed, indeed. And being led by uh, the least popular politician, <laughs> I think, in the entire UK, who's, as I say, outlasted by a lettuce, is, uh, is uh, you know, a, a level of uh, lacking self awareness I don't think I've ever seen. But uh, the serious point to your, your question, is Labour are our biggest challenge up here mm. in Scotland? No point pretending uh, otherwise. We've got to work hard. Uh, general elections traditionally for the SNP have been really tough. I mean, it was only post the independence referendum that we start winning big. In general elections, if you go pre-2014, we've only ever had a handful of seats, six MPs, five MPs, seven MPs. So we were, we were, we're never big winners in general elections. Uh, so what we've got to do is work exceptionally hard to make sure that we become the party that wins the general election. I've got every confidence, I have to say, that the SNP will win uh, the general election whenever it's held. You've said that you have no doubt that Keir Starmer will be the next Prime Minister and I know you've appealed to him to have some discussions about how you can work together. Were you surprised to have your invitation rebuffed? Uh, he doesn't write, he doesn't call. He doesn't... <laughs> He's left you on read. <laughs> yeah, he has. He has. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Completely kind of rubber dingy. Um, uh, no, so I've not, I've not had a response. You're absolutely right. I, I'm pretty disappointed in, in Kier. Kier and I have had a couple of conversations over the last few months, mainly in passing at different events. Uh, COP28, he was there and I was there. And again, just a brief kind of five minute uh, chat. And, and he said, you know, really want to make sure that if I'm in, then I respect evolution and, you know, you'll see a difference in approach, but he's not demonstrated that. Yeah, and and I, I've always of the belief that even though our politics might differ, there's a lot of things we can talk about, we should talk about. For me, the real tragedy of Keir Starmer is you've got somebody who's 20 to 25 points ahead in the polls and his main tactic is to try to create a manifesto that in, in, in Labour's words is Tory bomb-proof. So it's effectively just aligning. So at a time when you should be bold, you should be radical because you've got such a strong lead in the polls, you're coming in and, and presenting uh, just complete banality. And, uh, you know, if I give you an example where I think we could work together, the two-child limit in terms of the benefits. Mm. Yeah. Uh, here's a policy that is keeping 250,000 children across the UK in poverty. Anti-poverty charities tell you just that one measure, lifting that one measure lifts a quarter of a million children including quite significant numbers in Scotland, I think around 15,000 uh, in Scotland, out of poverty, almost at the drop of a hat. And yet he is refusing to commit to do that. And it's, uh, for me, uh, just not just tragic, but unforgivable. So what I'm saying to Keir Starmer is, look, come and have a chat. We'll support you at the MPs we've got. We'll support you around the Green Prosperity Fund because not only is that the right thing to do by the, the climate, it's a huge economic opportunity for Scotland. Uh, I know the real reason why both of you didn't come to Scotland is because it's quite windy, but that wind <laughs> is good for us up here in terms of our offshore wind capacity. Um, so huge economic opportunity. But we're not seeing anything from Keir Starmer that demonstrates a man who's willing to demonstrate leadership or show leadership, just wants to get the keys to number 10 and goodness knows what he'll do when he's there. And he's how said, about with Rishi Sunak then? Have boy, you, um, are you getting on? Boy, boy. Uh, <laughs> Again, Batamizi after Batamizi after Batamizi uh, to try to push me into a very difficult response. Uh, no, I, look, there's no, there's no, there's no personal relationship uh, there. I have to say, I remember my first conversation with Rishi Sunak. So he's ghosting you too, just for clarity. 
Yeah, no. In fairness to Rushi uh, Sunak, uh, we've had uh, a number of, of meetings and conversations. But I do remember the first one that we had it was telephone call. I'd just become first minister. And, um, you know, I thought just to the way to kind of break the ice, you know, I'd spot, speak about the common heritage we've got and the background that we've got. And look, you know, obviously there's disagreements, prime minister uh, between us, but, you know, I think it's an important moment that you became the prime minister as a person of colour. And there was just no, I was like, okay, let's talk about, you know, business and talk about the <laughs> deposit return scheme. And so I felt, right, we're, we're, we're not going to be having a nice cosy uh, chat to begin with. Um, and it's clear, the second thing that was very clear from that first phone call was how quickly he wanted off the phone. Really? I did have a, have a list of about six different things that I'm going to raise these issues with you that we need to talk about as well. Um, but, you know, he just wanted off the call. So no, there's, there's genuinely no, I'm afraid there's no personal uh, relationship there, which is is, is not, not really a big issue. But um, yeah, professionally, uh, I think the, the less he can see of me, he probably feels the better. Nothing's going to be helped by the First Minister and the Prime Minister not getting on, right? That's going to be bad in any iteration, whether in independent Scotland or not. So it's quite crucial. To an extent, I mean, you don't have to be best pals. I think if you're just able to, to show a bit of humanity. I'll give you an example, and this is in fairness to Keir Starmer. You know, when we were going through what was a really difficult time that you've already touched upon with my in-laws being in Gaza, um, you know, Keir Starmer, in fairness to him, reached out and uh, picked up the phone and said, politics aside, really thinking about you and your family. My thoughts are with you and the thoughts of the Labour Party are with you. And you know, phoned me personally to say that, not just put out a statement. And I thought, that's look, that's a decent mark of, of, of an individual. Whereas, you know, Nothing from the Prime Minister. And actually, at the time, the Foreign Secretary had to be shamed uh, into talking to me. I think um, a number of media interviews uh, where, where I was asked if James Cleverley had been in touch, and I said he's not. And, and he was ultimately shamed into picking up the phone to me. So I think look at the basic kind of common humanity it doesn't cost us anything. I, the only vague positive I can take from that is I previously did not believe James Cleverley had the capacity for shame. So actually, <laughs> that's, not, that's not a bad thing to hear. We have a very engaged yes. and well-read and well-informed listenership, um, but some of them have also asked some more relaxed questions of you. Um, if you weren't in politics, what job would you have? Uh, that's from Clara McCabe, and I would tag on to that question. I assume it's got to be something to do with Celtic Football Club. <laughs> yes, I mean, other than being chairman of Celtic Football Club, which would, uh, of course, be... Uh, what I would be doing if I wasn't in politics. You know, this is, is South Asians too, right? When I was growing up, you were either to be a doctor, dentist, pharmacist, accountant, or lawyer. Yeah. Bus, right? It was one of those. And I always thought I'd end up being a lawyer. And in fact, I put it down in my, what we call the UCAS form, the university entrance form here. I put down law and all of the options except the last one, I snuck in politics. And I got into both law and politics. And I remember it was the scariest conversation I had to have with my parents, my South Asian lovely Desi parents to tell them, mm -hmm. By the way, I'm not going to do law, I want to do politics. And I kind of braced myself for the, the, the inevitable slipper that was coming, but it didn't come. And parents were exceptionally positive. So, so um, sorry, long answer to the short question is probably would have been uh, something to do with, 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 uh, with law. I mean, I thought. First Minister, cry me a fucking river. <laughs> I have to have a conversation about being a stand up comedian. <laughs> <laughs> and that's why they still don't talk to you to this day. Okay, okay, okay. So, um, what are some other jobs you've had outside of politics? The worse, the better, please. Oh, right. Um, so uh, mainly call centre jobs. But I also worked, my very first job was working in the sixth floor of a dusty clothes cash and carry. Um, I think getting paid £2.05 uh, an hour. But you had, this, you had this lift, so it was a sixth floor. You had a lift where you had to take the boxes of socks and pants and all these things up to the sixth floor. And it was not a lift, not an not a, not a electric lift. You had to wind it up by hand. <laughs> and because I did this for about You're three months. You're not that old, mate. What no. is this story from 1974? <laughs> I, was, I was actually 13 in like, uh, the summer, summer of the holidays. So like two months, I think it was, of doing this. I had the right bicep, like Popeye. <laughs> and I had the left arm, which was like a string bean. So I came out with this huge bicep in my right hand, having wound up this lift. Uh, for the best part of eight weeks and nothing on the left hand, which was... Everyone's like, why is Hamza always sideways well, on now? I, I will say this. Uh, there's probably different reasons people think a 13-year-old boy has a stronger hand <laughs> than one arm. <laughs> oh, there's always one, there's always one in the car. There's always, there's always one with in the With Mitch, always. <laughs> well, look, um, the final word does go to our listener, Kirat Randua, who writes on Instagram, no questions, but please let him know he's gorgeous. 
I, How yeah, does that but, feel? That's my, mom's, so, that's my mum's sock puppet account. Yeah. Uh, well. Thanks, mum. Uh, that's really kind. Listen, First Minister, thank you so much for your time. We thank very you. much appreciate it. We do want to save the UK, but you're always welcome. <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much. That was a really good chatting to you. Thanks, guys. Thanks, guys. Thank you so much, uh, First Minister Hamza Yusuf. Thank you. You might have heard that former US President Trump was ordered to pay $83.3 million in damages after a huge defeat in his most recent defamation trial. On Crooked's legal pod, Strict Scrutiny, host Kate Shaw, Leah Lippman and Melissa Murray speak to the woman awarded. That's E. Jean Carroll and her lawyer, Roberta Kaplan, on a special bonus episode. You can listen to this episode out now on the Strict Scrutiny feed. You can get in touch with us by emailing psuk at reducelistening.co.uk. It's always lovely to hear your voices, so just send us a voice note. On WhatsApp, our number is 07514 644 572. And internationally, that's plus 44 7514 644 572. Don't forget to follow at Pod Save the UK on Instagram and Twitter. You can also find us on YouTube for access to full episodes and other exclusive content. And if you like, you can drop us a review too. Be nice though, we're very sensitive. <laughs> we have feelings. Pod Save the UK is a reduced listening production for Crooked Media. Thanks to senior producer Musty Aziz and digital producer Alex Bishop. Video editing was by Nada Smelianich and the music is by Vasilis Fotopoulos. Thanks to our engineer David Degahi. The executive producers are Anishka Sharma, Dan Jackson and Madeline Herringer with additional support from Ari Schwartz. And remember to hit subscribe for new shows on Thursdays on Amazon, Spotify, Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs> 